Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Hey, listeners, it's just me today here on Charlotte's Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're doing a little uh, wrap-up for the year 2020 and I don't know about you but I'm tired it's been a it's been a uh, it's been a long year uh, you know condolences go out to all those people who have suffered during the year who've lost loved ones who've had friends neighbors uh, family who've been sick during this year with the virus and uh, here's hoping to uh, you know a future in 2021 where some of that changes. It's been an interesting year for me on the podcast because I was uh, sort of rocking along in the first part of the year, January, February, March, had about uh, five live podcasts scheduled. Uh, we were launching our dinner and a podcast and things were looking pretty good, but uh, like everything else that the uh, virus did, it kind of uh, it kind of did away with podcasting in person. So we had to pivot, as a lot of people did in 2020. And what I did was uh, found some software. It's called Squadcast. We started uh, recording remotely. And uh, through that remote uh, recording, uh, you know, one door closed, uh, another opened. Uh, we started uh, getting not just uh, authors uh, locally and regionally, but we, we got those as well because uh, it was easier for people to travel who, you know, were in the region, that is, travel remotely than it was to jump in a car and drive three hours sometimes to come to Charlotte in the studio. And so we started uh, podcasting remotely, and uh, it's it's worked pretty well. We've started to get uh, a lot of authors from around the country now who are submitting to be on the podcast, and that'll, that'll be reflected in uh, 2021 as well, although we are still sticking to uh, you know, primarily local and regional with, uh, with a touch of that national and even an international author now and again. But today I've got, uh, we're going to have some fun today. Uh, We're going to do sort of a recap of what happened in 2020. Uh, We're going to riff on what's new and what's planned for the coming year. You'll find answers today as to how much the podcast grew in 2020. Uh, Talk about the variety of authors and stories on the show. And I'll tell you about the top 10 downloaded episodes and, you know, what I learned from some authors who appeared on Patreon and, and a little bit about what's coming in uh, 2021. And, and as has been the tradition with these guest-free uh, episodes, which is what this is today, which don't happen very often, I'm going to read a few short pieces that I wrote that were published this year. But first, I'd like to thank all the authors who appeared on the show this year, uh, both the free podcast and the Patreon channel, and also all you listeners who uh, tuned in to, to listen to the podcast. And to the sponsors, uh, uh, Parker Books and Charlotte McMurray Library and all the uh, episode sponsors we had during the year. Very much appreciate uh, their support, uh, as well as our Patreon supporters. Thank you for being a supporter of the podcast and our team members, uh, which you can uh, now find on a uh, team page on our website. Now, a little bit of background here. Um, 
I'm leading off with this piece, uh, which was published uh, in Headwaters 3 of the High Country Writers uh, in December of this year uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it uh, it's a story I've been wanting to tell for a while because it happened to me my freshman year of college. Uh, and two, uh, maybe uh, some of the guys I played football with uh, will listen to this and have some uh, fond memories as well. And uh, I'm putting it first because, you know, they don't stay up late uh, and, and, and they don't, a lot of them, you know, the interior linemen don't read much anyway. <laughs> don't know who I'm talking about here. Uh, so th- I'm going to do it in an audio format for them so they, they can listen. But uh, there's, this is a nonfiction piece, believe it or not, uh, and I'm going to share it with you now. It's called Yahweh's Football Team. In our first two weeks as college football players, my classmates and I suffered deceit kidnappings, a gunfight, and racial insensitivity. It set the stage for the worst football team any of us ever played on and turned us into who we are today. Our first lesson, seniors lie to freshmen. Excel at the physical fitness test and you can start as freshmen. Sounded good to us. Do as many reps as you can. We did, and they cheered us on, even helped the coaches count the number of push-ups chin-ups, step-ups, squat thrusts, jump-ups, leg lifts, dips, and bear crawls we could do in the allotted time. Way to go! They slapped us on our backs. A freshman meeting followed. The coaches explained the purpose of the tests. We run the first circuit at 5.45 in the morning. Don't be late. There was no way we could be late because the trainer used an air horn to wake us up the next morning. We stumbled from our dorm rooms and into the morning mist like the walking dead. And when we made it to the gym, we broke into groups at different stations. Our strength coach had a bad horror movie smile on his face as he stood on the catwalk above. Gentlemen, he said, it's time to wake up those bodies. To complete a circuit, we had to sprint around the gym three times, stopping at each station to do one half the number of reps performed in our tests. It was a surprise to see the seniors, who were more athletic than we freshmen, doing five push-ups to our 20, three chin-ups to our 10, and so on. When we confronted them about their chicanery, the disparity between their strengths and our numbers, they said they did it for our own good. Our next big test came when teammates began to disappear. We figured they were quitting because of the twice-daily circuit and the rigors of full-pads football in August, but Yahweh our head coach, disputed that notion. I don't recruit losers. Yahweh was neither all-powerful nor all-knowing, and why we ascended to the nickname is still a mystery, but he had a ready answer to our question about what happened to our teammates. The Turk got them. Once again, the seniors filled us in. The Turk, who is from Turkey, was famous for sneaking into nomadic tents of unwary travelers, stealing their valuables, making slaves of their women, and kidnapping their men for ransom. For some reason, he liked to kidnap Davison football players, too. Now, we weren't stupid, but we were superstitious, so we stayed on guard for the Turk, and at the end of 12 sweat-laden days, we sensed freedom coming like the last day of school. And when the final whistle blew in our last preseason practice, We ran toward Yahweh, cleats pounding turf like Clydesdale headed for the barn. Over here, Yahweh said, gather around. We made a tight huddle circling our God in the 98-degree afternoon heat. The only sound in the huddle was heavy breathing 
and we could smell the sweat on each other's bodies. We were thirsty, and our legs were dead. But summer camp was over. We had made it, and we were soon to be free of the physical drudgery and the head games. That is, until our defensive back coach spoke up to Yahweh and threw a fit. Coach Jay, Yahweh said, over here, now. But Coach Jay ignored him. He called his defensive backs to come back to him on the double. But when a few of us started to move, Yahweh's voice boomed from on high. Stop. That was when Coach Jay lost his mind. They're not ready. It'd be stupid in practice now. Like a lightning bolt from heaven, Yahweh's clipboard shot out of his hand, slammed to the ground, stuck on one corner, and wobbled. Give it up, Coach Jay. Coach Jay didn't. Like a bighorn sheep intent on collision, he lowered his head and sprinted at Yahweh. We took a step back. Yahweh smiled, puffed his chest, and reached in his pocket. What's he got? Someone whispered. The next thing we heard was the sound of firecrackers. We soon realized it was the bang of a handgun. Coach Jay lay dead still on his back in the cut grass. Yahweh stood over him with disheveled hair, his mouth clenched. In one quick moment, the world stopped spinning. Conversation ceased and reality was suspended. Surely this was not God's plan. Coach Jay had run us ragged in the summer heat, but we didn't wish him harm. So much for the season, so much for college football, and so much for the truth of the Davison College motto, Alinda Lux Ubi Orta Libertas, which means let learning be cherished where liberty has arisen. Ten seconds later, our lesson was completed when Coach Jay arose. He bounced up like Lazarus on a trampoline, all smiles. Yahweh emptied the blanks from his pistol, told us to get showered, dressed, and meet behind the gym. He was taking us to eat pizza and see a movie. You're gonna love it. If modeling inappropriate use of a firearm was not less than enough, the coaches picked a wonderful movie to make the few black players on our team feel at home in the 70s South. The Statesville Movie Theater was showing Mandingo, a movie mostly about a black slave who gets spoiled in a pot on an open fire by a white plantation hunter. It was an uncomfortable end to our uncomfortable beginning. Our first game was against Virginia Military Institute, with a team made up mostly of freshmen because most of the upperclassmen had quit. We rolled out of town on a Greyhound bus, hopeful our winning high school pedigrees would carry us to victory. When the coin toss fell our way, we, the Davidson Wildcats, were ready to roll, ready to score, ready to win, until our forward progress was stopped by none other than Yahweh. He did it with four simple words. We elect to kick. Now, in that era, if a college football team elected to kick off in the first half, the other team, unless they had an extremely poor football IQ, could and would elect to receive the ball in the second half. And because we were a group of athletes smart enough to get past the Davison Admission Committee, we murmured, what the hell, to each other when Yahweh gave the other team the ball at the beginning of both halves. Here was his reasoning. We're going to stuff the cadets near their own end zone and force them to punt. Now, here's what he said. We're going to kick off and set the tempo for the game. Yahweh's game-time decision was as confusing as his one-line transcendental pep talk in which he mused, all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. We translated this to mean it's stupid to kick off when you win the toss, even if you are God. 
The cadet kick returner caught the football five yards deep in VMI's end zone, and when he took off up the field, we could feel the turf vibrate. It had the feel of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. In less than 12 seconds, the runner slid through Yahweh's kickoff team like a hockey puck, slapped through a crowd of figure skaters for a quick six points. And after the scoreboard added 42 more points in favor of VMI and none to our credit, we boarded the bus for Davidson. Yahweh's set-the-tempo lyrics were punctuated by Springsteen's melody playing in our heads. The season only got worse. There was no euphoric comeback from our opening loss. This was not Remember the Titans. The mountain was too high for us, and Rudy never got in the game because we were always too far behind. Our team got its butt kicked every place but one. A long-distance win that ruined our perfect season. We had to fly all the way to Ohio on a Piedmont Airlines prop plane to get the victory against Kenyon College on what looked like a Pop Warner field. Our opponent had, what, maybe 25 players? We won by a touchdown, but it was as if we won the Super Bowl by 50 points. Our 10 seniors broke out cigars and sang songs on the ride back to the airport. And to this day, whenever we light up ceremonial cigars at football reunions, we wonder what maneuvers our wily athletic director made to get Kenyon on our schedule. Yahweh's reign did not last much past our graduation. Some believe the Turk got him, but it's more likely the agnostics in the Wildcat Club eventually lost faith. They wanted a new covenant, and the heretical cries sent Yahweh into the wilderness, never to return. Playing ball for an idol god did not define me or my class. We got better on the field and in life. I became a lawyer the kind that abhors liars. I don't play with guns. I respect them. I've learned to do more than just cringe when ethnicities, nationalities, and races are demeaned. I've tried to speak up. And when my favorite football team calls a run play on third and eight, hell, I know how to laugh because I've seen worse. So this has been a tremendous year of growth for us here at the podcast. We couldn't have reached uh, all the milestones that we did without uh, listeners like you. So we really appreciate you being a part of our podcast family. We, uh, believe it or not, we released 103 episodes on Charlotte Rears Podcast in 2020. Uh, we have reached uh, 170 episodes since launching the podcast in the fall of 2018. And we're going to keep up the pace in 2021. We're going to continue to release two episodes a week uh, on Tuesdays and Fridays. Although in the coming year, um, we're doing a few things a little bit differently. We're going to we're going to kind of hone back to a 30 to 35 minute interview with a reading, uh, an author reading in the middle of the show. And, and we're going to actually uh, be adding more Patreon content because the authors are going to hang around. Uh, most of them will anyway, if they can, and uh, do a little episode following the free episode uh, where we dive deeper, maybe talk about writing craft, creativity, maybe something related to the business of writing, something of interest to uh, readers and writers. And, uh, so that'll that'll allow us to sort of uh, get more people on the show, um, also build our uh, Patreon catalog, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll have some of you join as patrons and help uh, help us support this uh, thing we're doing called uh, podcasting. Now, a couple other things that happened this year: we uh, not only released 103 free episodes, but we released 32 exclusive Patreon episodes on everything from uh, the craft of writing to the business of writing to uh, to just uh, the, the topic of creativity. And I had some wonderful uh, 
episodes uh, on the Patreon channel with authors. And I like to joke that uh, it's sort of the, my cheap way of getting an MFA. I interview all these authors with all this great knowledge, and then I come away with all these great ideas and um, how I should improve my writing, how I should improve the business side of being a writer. And uh, I've actually put into practice a couple of the things that I learned this year. So, you know, here's my little commercial for Patreon. It's, uh, you know, it's either $5 or $8 a month. Uh, $5 gets you all the audio content. Uh, for a little bit more, you can tip. And from time to time, we'll have some other benefits for the $8 level. But for the most part, you can get a lot of information uh, about uh, writing, uh, both the craft and business of writing, for only a few dollars a month. And uh, not only are you going to get uh, the 32 exclusive Patreon episodes that we released in 2020, but coming in uh, 2021, uh, we're putting up nine of those episodes just in January, probably eight more in February, and more after that for the authors who uh, stick around and do those Patreon episodes with us. So it's a great way to uh, not only help uh, – us build this community uh, of readers and writers on Charlotte's podcast, uh, helping us to fray the costs of doing this project, but uh, you get some great content in return. So uh, check out our Patreon page. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. We've also got a uh, page on the website, charlotteriverspodcast.com, that has more information about Patreon and actually has a, a page that shows all the episodes we put up in 2020 and I'll keep loading those uh to the to the page in 2021. All right, so uh lots of good stuff there. We had uh so say 103 free episodes, 32 exclusive episodes. We also put up uh, 18 free Patreon episodes uh, as part of our COVID-19 read-in featuring more than 40 writers and we put up five free Patreon episodes featuring uh some Charlotte Writers Club poets and some High Country Writers Club writers uh and more. Other exciting news that happened in 2020, we were invited to join Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, which publishes author-hosted literary podcast or worldwide audience, which means that uh, uh, the authors' voices are spreading farther and wider in podcast land now that we're part of that network. And not that uh, downloads are, you know, that uh, significant. It's more about uh, listenership and those of you who keep coming back and enjoying the content. But we did uh, we did add a number of listeners uh, in 2020, if you believe, you know, what's happening on the on the download feed. At uh, year in 2019, we had uh, around 12,000 downloads. Uh, but, uh, you know, into 2020, we've got uh, 40,000. So big thanks to you, the listener, for helping us triple our listener engagement this year. Uh, we couldn't have done it without all the authors uh, who participated and all you, the listeners, as well as our team members and sponsors that uh, help support us. So in total, we had uh, 170 episodes on the regular podcast, 190 authors on the regular podcast from start to finish, and uh, more to come because I've been uh, busy, actually pretty busy. That's why I'm pretty tired at this point and ready for a little break. But uh, I think I recorded uh, 12 or 13 episodes in November and uh, 12 or 13 episodes in December to get ready for the first quarter of 2021. we got some great uh, great content coming to you uh, in 2021. So now I'd like to take just a moment and share our top 10 downloaded episodes of 2020, all of which can be accessed uh, on our website at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Just go to the guest page or the author page, whatever we're calling it now, and search for these authors, click on their link, and you can find their episode. 
So we'll do like they do when they have these contests and they announce them in uh, reverse order. We'll start with the uh, 10th place. Uh, but in the 10th place this time, we had uh, actually four ties. And uh, uh, the ties uh, go to Carrie Knowles, Judy Selden Corn, and Judy Schindler for their episode, Jackie Shelton Green, and Mary Kratt. And just a little bit about each one real quickly. Uh, in the episode we had with Carrie Knowles, she shared fiction from Black Tie Optional, The Inevitable Past, and A Garden Wall in Provence. Uh, she was the 2014 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate for short fiction, uh, and she read from her pieces, and we talked about uh, each one of them. Also in that 10th uh, spot, Judy Schindler and Judy Selden Cohen, uh, their book was Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America. We had a great conversation talking about this uh, uh, nonfiction work and uh, how recharging Judaism calls American synagogues to take uh, institutional stands on social justice issues and much more. Uh, also in the 10th spot, uh, Jackie Shelton Green. Jackie Shelton Green uh, appeared on the show uh, in January 2020. She is was at the time the North Carolina Poet Laureate. She read and discussed her poetry. We had a great time uh, hearing uh, and talking about uh, not only her poetry, but what it means to be an ambassador uh, in the world of poetry for the state of North Carolina. And then uh, the fourth in the spot uh, in number 10 is uh, Mary Kratt, uh, another poet, uh, but also a history writer. Uh, Mary shared her poetry and history in Watch Where You Walk in Charlotte, North Carolina, A Brief History. Fred Chapel, the former North Carolina Poet Laureate, uh, called Watch Where You Walk a clean-lined, economical, pointed, and soulful work. Uh, and I really enjoyed diving uh, into the history of Charlotte with uh, Mary. It was a lot of fun. So those are our 10th place spots. Uh, in the ninth position, uh, Mark Perez. Mark, a fellow podcaster, uh, he uh, visited with 100 influential people about the topic that is the title of his book on life and meaning. And we dove into uh, that topic uh, on the episode and uh, asked him about the meaning of life and uh, many other things. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, number eight spot, uh, legal thriller writer, Webb Hubble. Uh, Webb, uh, we talked about his legal thriller, The East End. He's written a number of uh, books involving uh, his protagonist, attorney Jack Patterson, who faces life and death situations. Uh, this was no exception. We also talked about uh, Webb's interaction with uh, Bill Clinton, 42nd president of the United States, uh, and his role in government uh, at the time. And uh, a fun episode. By the way, you can you can access all these episodes at uh, uh, the website charlotteriespodcast.com. We've actually created a uh, an author page now uh, where we list all of our guests uh, and have links to their episodes. In the seventh spot, Scott Seifert. Uh, Scott wrote the book about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. The book is entitled The First American Declaration of Independence, The Disputed History of the Mecklenburg Declaration of May 20th, 1775. Had a lot of fun talking with Scott about the history of the Mech Deck and some of the controversies uh, that surrounded it. Ken Burns, uh, y'all may have heard of, documentary filmmaker, says Scott has rescued and brought vividly to life a little-known story of our revolutionary past and the urgent need for, by our ancestors for freedom. So if you're uh, interested in a little North Carolina history, uh, that's a good one to listen to as well. In the number six spot, some more history, this time with uh, Tom Hanchett, uh, his book, Sorting Out the New South City, Race, Class, and Urban Development in Charlotte from 1875 to 1975. And the New York Times uh, said of this book uh, that uh, 
Tom Hanchett's Sorting Out the New South Cities discovers surprising things about the development of southern cities. And I, I thought it was fascinating. I, I've lived in Charlotte uh, all my life except one year, and uh, I didn't know a lot of the facts uh, that, that Tom and I talked about. So again, if you're curious about a little Charlotte history, check out uh, that episode. In the fifth spot, we have a, uh, a renowned uh, local poet uh, and teacher in the area, Irene Blair Honeycutt. Uh, Irene uh, is a uh, namesake for an award that uh, is put out by Sensoria every year. She read from her uh, poetry books, Beneath the Bamboo Sky, Before the Light Changes, Waiting for the Trout to Speak, and It Comes as a Dark Surprise. And we had a chance to talk about her writing and poetry and a uh, uh, wonderful episode. All right, in the fourth spot, we have uh, Vernon Glenn. Vernon uh, is a fellow lawyer like myself. He's still practicing, though, but uh, he's uh, turned to writing, and he has written this tale uh, called uh, Friday Calls, a Southern novel. It's uh, He kind of turns a southern small town upside down in this book. Uh, it's full of color and motion, and uh, as Kirkus Review says, and uh, it's really uh, what happens when things go wrong on a Friday night on both sides of the tracks and on the tracks themselves. Uh, really enjoyed talking with Vernon about uh, the book and uh, that episode. was a lot of fun. In the number three spot, uh, Dennis Kerrigan. Dennis Kerrigan is a longtime member of the Charlotte Writers Club. Uh, he's a mystery writer. We talked about his book, Unusual Suspects. Uh, it offers a cast of quirky, lovable characters uh, just a lot of fun, a lot of humor. I enjoy uh, a mystery with some good humor thrown in. And uh, Dennis, uh, he, uh, he 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 did well in that book and, and, and obviously with the third spot. All right, number two. Uh, number two was our 100th episode with uh, Craig Johnson. Uh, Craig talked about his best-selling Walt Longmire novels that became a hit Netflix original series, Longmire. And uh, we spent a lot of time in that 100th episode. He was... Actually, one of the first uh, remote podcasts that we did, and he was a good sport about it, we uh, we put uh, new meaning to the phrase social distancing because Craig participated from his ranch in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25, while I was sheltering in place uh, in March in, in Charlotte. So um, he's uh, Craig is just a, he's a well-known writer. He's a recipient of the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction, uh, lots of other awards as well, and as I said, uh, his books were turned into a series for Netflix, uh, which are uh, a lot of fun to watch, and, and the books are great, too. All right, in the number one spot, drum roll. Uh, everybody knows uh, Molly Grantham. Uh, she is an uh, anchorwoman by day, but uh, she tells it honestly in her book, The Juggle is Real, the off-camera life of an on-camera mom. She's a two-time Emmy award-winning journalist who's been named TV News Reporter of the Year for both Carolinas one of Charlotte's top 40 under 40, one of Mecklenburg County's 50 most influential women. No uh, secret there as to why she uh, rose to the top in uh, one of the most downloaded episodes, uh, well, the the most downloaded episode in 2020 on Charlotte Roos Podcast. So there you go. That's the top 10. And I will say that we had a lot of other uh, author episodes that were close, uh, which means that, uh, you know, the... I think what it means is that uh, because of all the variety that we have, you know, everything from uh, mysteries, memoir, nonfiction, poetry, uh, given that variety, I think there's something for everybody, and it, it kind of spreads itself out. Okay, final reading about to come, but I want to tell you um, a little bit about some things that I'm excited about related to the podcast. We're always trying to improve 
podcast in different ways. Um, and, you know, trying to build this community. And one of the things we've done uh, with the help of our team, which, by the way, our team uh, consists of uh, Tom Pataccia. He is our webmaster. Uh, we have our social media people, social group marketing, uh, Renee Gorman and Wade Foley. And we have our publicity manager who also helps with the uh, with the newsletter. That's uh, Hannah. I, I want to call her Hannah Turner, but she's Hannah LaRue now. Um, and I, I love the name Hannah LaRue. I think it's could be a great name for like a mystery novel. Hannah, Hannah LaRue discovers the, the, the missing jewels in the lost volcano. But anyway, Hannah's going to be helping me uh, with another thing this year, uh, in addition to the newsletter, which we've now branded the book report because we're providing a lot of content in the book report. We're also going to be starting a community blog. So the idea is that uh, if you've been an author on the show or if you're a writer in the community and you'd like to submit to our community blog, we're going to have a way to do that in uh, 2021. Hopefully it's just a way that we can connect uh, more readers and writers and, uh, you know, allow authors and writers to get, uh, to be seen in other ways and to share blog posts on things like writing craft, on the business of writing, on creativity, uh, on book recommendations and so forth and so on. So hopefully you'll uh, check that out on the, at the podcast in 2021 and think about uh, submitting to be a part of that. And don't, uh, forget about the book report. You can sign up at the website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. When you do, you're going to get, uh, we're not going to spam you. That takes way too much time. But what we will do is every other Tuesday, you're going to get this newsletter that's put together, uh, really put together well by Hannah. Um, you'll get a little dear reader by me at the outset. Uh, you'll get uh, that week's playlist, you know, what's going to be playing on the podcast that week. You'll You'll get some links. Uh, you'll get some book recommendations. You might get some writing tips. We might link to the blog. Uh, we'll also have the next week's playlist because we only put it out every two weeks. Uh, we'll also be doing some giveaways. Um, you'll get a free ebook. Uh, we did give away some audiobooks uh, last year. We'll probably do some of that again. And we actually had an author, uh, Carrie Knowles, gave away uh, an audiobook, uh, one of her books, The uh, Inevitable Past. And if other authors want to do that as part of our platform, you know, give away a book from time to time or give away an audiobook or an ebook, uh, we can we can do that and kind of continue to build this community. Okay, so now I'm going to share one more reading with you. Uh, this piece that I wrote uh, was published uh, in Flying South. It's a little bit different than some of the other pieces I've wrote. Uh, it's not that uh, it's not that upbeat uh, lawyer saving Christmas. It's not that uh, you know, colloquial uh, nonfiction piece. Uh, it's a little bit different. It's called Tried and Convicted. It involves an unreliable narrator who's in her 90s, and it does have some language in it. Uh, it does have uh, some references to sex in it. It's uh, not gratuitous as part of this character's voice. I think you'll you'll hear it. You'll uh, understand where I'm coming from, but uh, I wanted to share that in case there are any little ones riding in the back seat there, or if you're listening to this with others and you don't want them to hear that uh, that content. Uh, as I said, it's a little different, but it uh, was something that I really enjoyed putting together. Uh, kind of The voice kind of came to me at one time as I was thinking about um, the difficulties of isolation, um, the difficulties of uh, the times uh, in which we find ourselves, and um, also the difficulties of, of a country that, uh, you know, is mired uh, in uh, racism and uh, the difficulty of understanding other people's feelings, uh, 
and uh, of course, empathy. So in any event, uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, piece that I wrote. Uh, as I said, a little bit different. Uh, that'll be all that I'll put out there for you today, and uh, then we'll bring it home at the end. Tried and convicted. One of my handlers told a detective that I had some bad shit go down in my personal life, and that's why I hate the court system. Well, that's the trouble with what's true and what's not. People believe what they want to believe. They can't get their heads around how a 96-year-old woman from deep in Appalachia with but 10 years of schooling could be a fixer for 54 years and make a gazillion bucks doing it. I'm not crazy, and that's a fact. Clever is totally and absolutely different than crazy. Once upon a time when I was young and pretty, I knew this handsome boy. He wasn't white like me, but I didn't care. He was kind, unlike Daddy, who in his small-town Baptist way, said I was a whore for getting pregnant at 14 and would go to hell. You're supposed to have sex for one purpose and one purpose only, except not before marriage, and definitely not with a colored. Two days after the baby was born, the boy I loved became what the law called a missing person. Daddy said he skipped out on me and was right happy about it. That smirk of his got me mad at men for the rest of my life and made me who I am. Two years ago, I decided on my own accord to move into a cell-like room with faded lime green walls. The place smelled like feces and urine, masked only slightly by rubbing alcohol. But according to the doctors and judges, my stay was going to be short-lived for monitoring and treatment, or death, whichever came first. The children, not the baby, were the ones who put me there, or so they thought. They told the court my mind wasn't right. The fact is, they didn't understand why at age 42, after Sam died, I wanted to make my own way, without a man for once, and while I left this backwoods town for 52 years, only to return two years ago. Mother, they whined, why do you move so often? I laughed at their stupidity. They had no idea what I did for a living and didn't know that a fixer has to live in the same place for a few years to get on the jury list and a few years more to get summoned for duty, and that it's important to become embedded in the community because they don't call the jury a panel of one's peers for nothing. All of which is to say that every time I moved to a new city, I assumed a new identity and I rarely called the kids something they didn't like, so they called me on my 94th birthday. Come home, mother, they said. We'll have a party for you. Some damn party. More like an ambush. We met every Thursday afternoon, the 12 of us, on the west-facing wing, led by one of the handlers, an eager young she-doc. Group was the same disjointed shit show as the jury because the doctors are more like judges than they care to admit, telling people when and where to sit, how to think, and what to do. The only difference between doctors and judges is the color of their robes. I saw the sessions for what they were, total bullshit, which is why I was so good at my job. I used those sessions to practice what I do best, forcing 11 other people to decide things the way I wanted them to be decided. I remember this one session when Mrs. Russell Stanton Hamilton IV explained another one of her many problems to the group. With her squeaky voice and tear-stained cheeks, she told how her late husband had gambled their fortune away and kicked the bucket without paying his life insurance premiums. I tried to ignore her, but you can't ignore fingernails on a blackboard, so I had to speak up. I reminded her that Russell IV was dead as roadkill and never was any good to her to begin with, and she should, no, she could, be her own person, solve her problems, and even get laid again if that's what she wanted. I didn't tell her to change her given name, even though that would have helped my mood tremendously. I hated the name Beatrice with a passion, like the woman was a rodent in a children's book. To set her straight, I offered her some be-your-own-person BS and asked her some Socratic-like questions. 
a trick law professors pull with their students when the professors don't know the answers to their own damn questions because the key, whether in group therapy or in the jury room, is making people think they are deciding for themselves. When the she-doc asked Beatrice to make a decision, judges call that the verdict, the rodent came up with a well-formed answer I had planted in her head, and as I expected, the remaining heads in the circle nodded their approval. Case closed. Now I don't like to brag, but I have to say that I fixed some pretty high-profile jury cases. O.J. doesn't have a pot to piss in now, but back then he had some serious cash hidden away, and he used it to engage me for his not-guilty verdict. I played the part of an old white racist, easy to do given the town that raised me, and I became the reverse barometer for the truth. By the time I made my argument to the other jurors that the bloody glove definitely fit, the entire jury hoped I was wrong. I slipped a note to Johnny Cochran that said, if it does not fit, we will acquit, and the rest is history. I cried like a little girl when the others pressured me to vote for O.J., a performance worth an Academy Award. But hey, I got something better, a shitload of money. My favorite trial was the one where the government charged Lorena Bobbitt with cutting off husband John's penis. As was typical of 99% of the male population, the males on the jury wanted to blame the female, and it really pissed me off. All the women thought Lorena perfectly sane for whacking off John's dick for raping her over and over, not temporarily insane, which is what we needed to decide to spring her. The hens cackled and the roosters flinched when Lorena told how she drove off that night with John's dong clutched tight in her hand, only to toss it into a field. We laughed even harder about the case of the missing penis and what the 911 operator must have broadcast to cause a bunch of heterosexual men in uniform to spend their evening chasing dick. The story had the rapist in stitches, too, because after the cops found his little buddy, the docs rubbed it with antiseptic and sewed it back on in a nine-hour operation. They did such a good job that old John bounced back as a porn star in the movie titled John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut. I kid you not. Sequestered as we were in a two-star hotel, I hired a local hooker to pleasure four of the five misogynists, and she got the fun on tape. The fifth wheel, the self-righteous preacher, balked at my generous offer, but only because he was a closet homosexual, a fact which came in handy when I threatened to expose him to his congregation at the Piney Grove Baptist Church, where dancing was still a sin. In the end, we women voted to find Lorena Bobbitt not guilty by reason of an irresistible impulse, a legal term that means she could not control her actions even though she knew them to be wrong. And all the men on the jury who'd lost control the night before, plus the preacher, said, Amen, or was it, Oh God. Either way, the jury was satisfied. Sex cases showed up in our group, too. The most memorable one was called The Case of the Sexual Inquiry, where Terrence Hart, a piston-pumping sex machine at age 91, started off by proudly reporting that he'd had sex with all the women in our circle except me, which was true, by the way, because I'd sworn off sex after my fourth husband. The women in the group affectionately referred to Terrence as Hardy Plank, after that fiber cement siding they use in construction that comes in long horizontal strips and is almost indestructible. Hardy Plank hoped the women would share how they felt when he was laying it to them, as he liked to say, and what kind of things they'd like done to them the next time around. Hardy Plank had a tiny black book cupped in his left hand, a pen in his right hand, and half spectacles perched on his nose, ready to record the answers, and I swear, the son of a bitch had a boner. When She-Doc noticed, her mouth fell open, which was not the best visual for Hardy Plank, but before he could perk up any more, Beatrice, having found her confidence, grinned from ear to ear. Well, she said, I'd like to say that when you touched me here, she pointed at each breast with each forefinger. On your nipples, you mean? Hardy Plank used a clinical tone as he made notes in his book, like he was her gynecologist or something. Yes, she said, that was very nice, but I think it was best when you used your fingers to, whoa, honey bun, I said, let's save that for your exit interview. 
I still couldn't shake the memory of walking in on their finger-licking fun and didn't need a refresher. What I needed was a diversion. But she-doc was no help. With her mouth still open, she could have called a week's supply of lime protein, so I stepped in and called the question. Much as I'd like to know how much wood our good friend Hardy Plant gave each of the women in our circle, I'd suggest we vote on it. I knew what they were thinking. Vote on what? It's called misdirection. Fixers do it all the time. All in favor of finding Hardy Plank guilty of having the biggest swinging dick on the ward, raise your hand. The hands of eight women and two men shot up along with my hand, which meant we had one holdout, which is typical in the jury room, too. Wilson Peterman had his large hands in his lap with a frown on his face. Mine's bigger. Come to think of it, I'd heard about Wilson Peterman's dick, and the reports were quite lengthy. So I had to use my guile, because it takes 12 votes to seal the deal. I thought fast about the trial I'd had where the court appointed a third-party expert to make a recommendation to the jury. I have an idea, I said. I propose that Beatrice take matters into her own hands, report back on which size matters most, and that her recommendation be final. Beatrice, Hardy Plank, Peterman, and eight other heads smiled and nodded, and the case was closed. I never told the group why I hated the court system, and I won't say much about it now, but I will say this. When my third ex-husband took me to court, I got mass handed to me. I had to start over with no alimony, no house, no car, no source of income. My ex's fishing buddy was the judge, and he ruled that the prenup, a wedding day surprise thrust at me by my rich bitch of a mother-in-law, and the reason I got fucked twice that day, is a valid and binding contract. He said it like he was scolding a child, so the next thing I did was run for judge against the bastard, and I won, because nobody knows who to elect as judge anyway, so it might as well have been me. Not long after taking the gavel, my patience ran thin and I got into hot water with the Judicial Standards Commission because it became pretty clear to the entire state bar that I hated lawyers. The commission griped about some petty ethical shit like cussing out lawyers in the courtroom, being late and drunk for work, and having sex with the two young bailiffs at the same time on the chief judge's desk. The chief judge, a highbrow lawyer, loved to brag about her imported desk, and for that reason alone, I was fine with the outcome. Plus, being a judge was a good education. It trained me to manipulate trials. I quit before they could fire me, swiped left on Tinder, found Sam, and married for the fourth and, thank God, final time. The kid salivated over Sam's $850,000 IRA in the two-bedroom, the spoils of his life's work. They felt it should come to them. He was their father, after all, and they never liked the fact that a 40-year-old, thrice-divorced woman married their 75-year-old father and stuck her nose into their Norman Rockwell lives by having sex with their daddy in mommy's bed. They thought I was after his money, but little did they know that I was after his honey. Sam the man seduced me with some good old-fashioned bed-thumping, headboard-rocking sex, and with that performance, I said, yes, I do. Sam was an addict. He really liked sex, probably too much. It killed him six months into the marriage. Heart went out with a bang, I might add. And despite my grief, the children blamed me, as if it was my fault he liked sex more than his kids. No, come to think of it, what they really didn't like was Sam's will. He cut them out and left everything to me. The competency hearing the kids engineered 54 years later was their effort to gain control over Sam's assets and put me away with the hope that I would die soon. That morning, I went to the courthouse early and met with the clerk. I complimented her dress and let it slip that I had always wanted to serve on a really important jury case. Do you think we will ever see such a case here? I knew the answer when I asked the question. My handlers had reported that the case had been filed under seal a few weeks earlier, and the clerk of court had just received the court's order to publish the allegations to the world that afternoon. The clerk smiled and patted me on the shoulder. You never know. Hell, I knew. I knew it'd take two years for the lawyers to posture and get the case ready for trial and knew that she would remember me. I thanked her and took the elevator to the third floor where I surprised everyone in the courtroom 
by agreeing to a two-year incompetency commitment. The truth is, after traveling the country for over half a century, I came home to live with the mentally aggrieved as part of a well-crafted plan. The defendant in the case, a liberal named Robert Baxendale, had enough of his only daughter who'd taken up with Jimbo Hadley, a local white politician who loved to talk about God and country and who spent his days hating on foreigners, gays, blacks, and others he thought had similar genetic defects. Jimbo preached that Medicaid and welfare were socialism. It was time to stop crying about Jim Crow spilt milk and all programs for the poor should be eliminated, even though he was all for bailing out the banks, giving tax breaks to white private schools, and propping up medical insurance for those who could afford it. MMA Hadley, the one and only heir to the Baxendale fortune, was Jimbo's ever-loving wife, a two-faced bitch who didn't start visiting the person she called her commie-loving daddy until after he won the state lottery. That suck-up maneuver pissed Baxendale off more than her marrying Jimbo, and with every right by law he had coming to him, he cut MMA out of his will and gave his $100 million estate, which came to him through Powerball winnings and good investment advice, to the local zoo. The lawyers for MMA called Baxendale crazy. But who could blame him with such a spoiled bitch of a kid? If I'd had a daughter who sucked up to a prick like Hadley, I might have hired Lorena Bobbitt to cut the problem in half. And speaking of male genitalia, I was drawn to this case by the fact that the case caption, Hadley versus Baxendale, has important significance to anyone who ever attended law school. The same case caption appeared in the most famous case in English contract law. It involved the creation of a rule of law in a case where one party delivered a defective crankshaft to another party that they had planned to use to grind grain. But that's not the part law students find compelling. In the early 1970s, a first-time actor assumed the porn name Hadley v. Baxendale. He probably did it to pay back his law school loans. But he used his own crankshaft to drill Marilyn Chambers in the movie that launched the adult film industry, Behind the Green Door. Again, true story. I couldn't make this shit up if I tried. MMA hired a brood of tall building lawyers from the state capitol to represent her and paid the local newspaper Wada Cash to print stories that her late daddy was Looney Tunes for giving all his money to otters and bears. But shit, it wasn't her money. If old Baxendale wanted to give it to the animals, more power to him. I'm sure it's written somewhere in the Constitution that you have the right to put your life savings in a trash compactor if it makes you happy, no matter what your kids or their lawyers have to say about it. That's why when I was released from the hospital, I did the unusual. I cut a deal with MMA to fix the case for her. This is the biggest case I'd ever been a part of since I was a teenager. The courtroom was filled with townies and tourists, and the press hovered like flies on stink. Thirty minutes before the evening recess, the lawyers had agreed on all but one juror. That's when the clerk caught my eye, winked, and called my name. It was showtime. MMA's lawyers asked me questions first, but knowing I was on their payroll, they accepted me as a juror number 12 a few minutes into the conversation. The suits who represented the Baxendale estate became suspicious. Now it was their turn. Miss, uh, Justice? Please call me by my full name. Uh, Miss, uh, Liberty Ann Justice? Yes, sir. My smile was a mirror image of the judge's frown. The suit regained his composure. Do you believe you can be fair and impartial about the sanity of a man who bequeathed his entire $100 million estate to the local zoo? I do. The other side says Mr. Baxendale should have given all his money to his daughter, not to the zoo. What do you think? I wanted to say that the bitch didn't deserve a dime, but the judge might have thrown me off the case. I think we need to consider all the facts before deciding someone is crazy. Miss Justice, one last question. I sat up straight. 
How do you feel about the allegation that Mr. Baxendale was crazy for what he did? My entire plan bore down to this moment. It's why I committed myself to the state hospital. I'd wanted to know everything there was to know about living under the control of white-coated wardens to feel and understand firsthand what it was like to be treated as if you were crazy so that I could talk about it with conviction. Sir, I... For effect, I grabbed a tissue from my purse. When my eyes began to water, I spun my lie, the one I'd practiced, as truthfully as I could. Sir, I had a close friend. She was like a sister to me who was wrongly committed to a mental institution when she was only 16 years old. I told about the awful living conditions, from the sour antiseptic smells to the so-called doctors who pumped her body full of mind-numbing drugs. I told about how her black boyfriend, the father of her baby, had been lynched, how the police did nothing about it, how the lawyer prosecutor, with the help of the chief of police, convicted my friend of killing the lynching bastard. They claimed she was crazy for shooting her daddy. I explained how the court stole my friend's baby and her inheritance, ruling she wasn't fit to be a mother and couldn't keep her daddy's money because she'd knocked him off and was out of her mind. I made one thing clear to the court. She was no more crazy than me. I paused and wiped tears away from my eyes and off my cheeks. I practiced this too, but I have to admit, the act left me an emotional wreck. When I was able to stop crying, I pressed my dress down in front of me and finished. Sir, I'm an old woman who's been through a lot, but I promise you that I will follow the court's instructions and take seriously the question of whether a person should be judged crazy for doing what they believe is the right thing to do. The rest of the trial was pretty straightforward. I did what I do best and turned the jury, but not in the direction MMA expected. Having banked the $10 million for MMA's side of the case, I cut a deal with Baxendale's team for another $20 million. With that deal done, I went to work and convinced everyone on the jury of the economic value and civic pride for our town of having the best damn zoo in the U.S. of A. After the trial was over, I thought about moving to another state, but I'd gotten kind of used to life on the ward. Believe it or not, I missed the likes of Beatrice, Hardy Plank, and Peterman, and since I was 96 years old and had done most of the damage I could do to the court system, I voluntarily checked myself back into the hospital. Two weeks later, I was on my laptop moving money around among my offshore accounts when a detective from the local police station showed up. We exchanged pleasantries while I glanced at the autographed photos of O.J. and Lorena on my wall. May I ask you a few questions about the Baxendale trial? The detective tried to appear nonchalant, like I wasn't his target, but I knew I was because MMA and my handlers were pissed at my betrayal. But hell, I was 96 years old and he was no Columbo. Plus, if the truth did come out, I would be known as the oldest criminal genius of all time. So I said yes and invited him to sit on my twin bed while I took a seat in my rocker. Do you know why someone would say you were on the jury in the Baxendale case? I smiled to myself when I realized the disguise had worked. That was one point in my favor. I don't have the slightest idea. We got an anonymous tip saying you bribed the jury. I laughed as I looked around the room. With what? Pictures of celebrities? Before he could ask another question, one of the HEDOCs walked into the room. Time for your medication. The prick said it with a smile, but it was not the kind you returned. It was one of those start smiles like he was on the same drugs he forced me to take. The detective looked at the HEDOC and then to me. Do you mind if I ask your doctor about your diagnosis? Fine with me, I said. I picked up my yarn and needles and pretended to knit. I hate to fucking knit, but it's something old people are supposed to do, so with my hands occupied and my head tilted toward the window, I rocked, knitted, and listened, because I'm a much better listener 
the knitter. My handlers had promised they would expose me if I ever portrayed a client, and the HEDOC got right to it. He lost into a diarrhea-like spiel that included words like delusional and court system and jury tampering and therapy and boyfriend and pregnancy and lynching and murder. The detective eyed me with what looked like sympathy while the HEDOC talked. She has no living relatives. Her only visitors are a young pastor and his wife from the local Baptist church who she thinks are her stepchildren. The doc said it like he was the solution to an Agatha Christie mystery. Obviously, the kids were Baptists like their grandfather, and everyone knows that dipshit stepkids of the Baptist variety don't count as relatives, but doc was one of the handlers who never believed in my work, so it wasn't hard for him to lie. I heard the detective ask a question about my court system obsession, and the doc leaned over and began to whisper, Poorly. Heard every false word. He left out the truth and blathered on with some made-up story about me having lost the only two people I ever loved in my life, one by hanging and one by court-ordered adoption to a family in Detroit. Hedock said I didn't trust judges and lawyers and hated cops, which is true, but not for those fairy tale reasons, and he said I had been a ward of the state for 80 years. Hell, this Hedock couldn't even count. It had only been two years, but the detective was buying his lies, so I ignored them both and continued rocking. When I feel sad, I close my eyes and rock. Rocking soothes me, makes me content. Not that screwing the court system for the last 54 years hasn't given me immense joy. It's just that I I like the back-and-forth motion. It reminds me of when my mother rocked me at night as a little girl and of the few days in the hospital when I rocked my little girl, when there might have been a happily ever after. I try to remember what followed, but it's hard. My handlers call it, what is it? blocking, but I don't think that's it. I think I have a broken past that never healed. It's the reason I became a fixer. Do you understand what the doctor said? I stopped rocking, leaned back, and looked the detective in the eyes. I understood perfectly what the HEDOC said, and true to my plan, I really had nothing to fear now and nothing more to say because my secret life as a jury fixer was safe. For a moment, neither the detective nor the HEDOC spoke. The detective asked me how I felt about the diagnosis, which should have been Hedoc's job. That's all shrinks ever ask, how you feel and shit like that. I began to rock again, and I kept my mouth shut. I wasn't about to let them know how I felt. I rocked for another two hours, long after Hedoc and the detective left my room, and despite the stories that Hedoc had told about me, I began to feel better. I'd just completed the biggest jury case of my life and made a shitload of money for the Innocence Project, and I reminded myself that I had a unique talent that shouldn't go to waste. Earlier that morning, I'd seen a news story on TV about a class-action lawsuit against the city of Detroit for its lead-lined drinking water pipes that caused cancer in thousands of children. I knew that most class-action cases take at least five years to get to trial, and by then, I'd be 101, but I had it in me to do And I decided that very night that I wanted to fix that case before I died because the pictures of those children, they really got to me. I can't explain it, but those pictures, they really did get to me. When the HEDOC called me crazy, I didn't care. I'd been called crazy for most of my life. And if balancing the scales of justice is crazy, then call me crazy. The thought of righting another wrong, winning one more case... Warmed my body like a shot of good bourbon. It sprung me from my rocker with the vigor of a young woman about to celebrate her last night on the town before starting her dream job. 
and it made me do what nobody on the ward expected. I put on a sexy slip, knocked on Hardy Plank's door, and asked him if the 60-minute man was in the house. The next morning, with my rosy cheeks and a smirk of my own, I boarded a train for Detroit to have my way with the justice system one last time. Thanks for listening to uh, that story. Uh, thanks for listening to all the stories. Thanks for listening to Charlotte Rears Podcast. Thanks for engaging with us on social media, uh, which you can do at, uh, on Facebook and Instagram uh, at Charlotte Rears Podcast and on Twitter at Charlotte Reader. Uh, thank you for subscribing to the book report uh, where we provide uh, lots of bookish content. Uh, thank you for helping us grow triple in 2020. And thank you for being a, a subscriber and a regular listener to the podcast and uh, a member of our Patreon platform. Uh, this has been a real journey for me. It's been a lot of fun. It's been an experience. Uh, you know, I, I tell the story that, uh, uh, you know, I exited stage left from a 35-year law practice to a podcast studio. And I'll sometimes joke about, did you hear the one about the lawyer that walked into a podcast studio? Well, that was me. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know the difference between a mixing bowl and a mixing board. And I still am learning the mixing board, and I know absolutely nothing about how to use a mixing bowl. That's according to my wife. In any event, um, I do enjoy engaging with authors. Uh, A lot of work goes into this, a lot of time, but it's time that uh, I wouldn't trade because uh, the best part of it is when I sit down uh, for that interview and... uh, you know, despite my outline, despite my preparation, uh, it's fun to let the conversation go in the direction that the conversation needs to go. And I'll learn a lot uh, and laugh and have a good time. And I hope you do too when you're uh, listening to the podcast. All right. Thankful for 2020. Um, thankful for the opportunity to do this thing called podcasting and to write and to be out there doing those things. But very much hopeful about 2021 vaccine, people getting out, mingling, getting together, doing all the things we want to do. Let's do it. Let's make 2021 a great year. In the meantime, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.